0: We've been in this crazy uh, long series, but a good series talking about the life of Jesus kind of leading towards the cross, and we've been hitting these highlight moments, these powerful conversations and encounters that the gospel uh, uh, tracks, and essentially it, it, it shares with us that at a certain point in his life in ministry, Jesus pivots and starts heading towards Jerusalem because he knows he has an appointment that no one else quite understands, and every time he tries to explain it to his disciples, they're challenged and they don't seem to get it. They kind of put him off as, oh, here goes the, here goes the master, the teacher. He's talking crazy again. And time and time again, he says things like, they're, they're, they're going to destroy this temple and in three days, I, uh, it's going to restore it. And, the, and he's, the, the disciples are like, I don't know what you're talking about. And, uh, and he begins this journey, starts heading towards Jerusalem because he really wants to celebrate Passover there. And we see story after story of conversation that he has on the way. And as a matter of fact, along the way, some very important moments happen. One of the most significant is uh, one of his friends by the name of Lazarus dies. And we talked about this several weeks ago. And Jesus, come on now, he goes to the tomb and he's like, Lazarus, come forth. And he's specific about Lazarus because if he just said come forth, everyone in the tomb might have come out. And it would have got messy and wild, right? But Lazarus comes forth. And the scripture tells us he stunketh. Which is amazing. You should read the King James Version because there's fun words in there. And he stinketh, and and he had been dead for at least four days, but he was now alive. And this causes mass, mass change in culture. This is a culturally significant, huge, and epic moment because people knew Lazarus people had relation he was famous in his town he was a known person people had been to his funeral had prepared his body had put it into the grave and now he was and about. And this changed everything on the perspective of who Jesus was and how much power and authority he had. And it actually caused political trauma and tension for him because the two ruling classes of the Jewish religious hierarchy, they had kind of their Democrats and Republicans, one of their major, major issues that they disagreed on was the absolute uh, certainty of an afterlife or not. Some believed none. And others, yes. And here comes, you can't come back from the grave if there's no afterlife, right? And it creates this tension and this political turmoil starts to happen. And the, and the politicians, the religious leaders, start trying to find a way to kill and get rid of Jesus. He's become too popular and he's disrupting the power structure. And so the scripture tells us from that point on, he doesn't move around publicly anymore, He's no longer doing public ministry. He's instead kind of house to house and and withdrawn from larger crowds. But then comes the time of the Passover. And if you have been following along, last week we talked about what the Passover is, this celebration, uh, this annual party and celebration that's epic where the Jewish culture celebrates Passover, which is them getting out of Egypt and out of slavery. It's the angel of death passing over the houses that had blood over the doorpost. And if you've, uh, uh, you could read Exodus and get the story there. But they celebrate this tradition and they eat this very specific meal. And Jesus wants to come and celebrate and have this uh, this tradition in Jerusalem, which is kind of the uh, the most important point, the focal point of the celebration. It's like the 4th of July celebration, but they get to be in Washington, D.C., like the capital, and it's like a big deal. Everything's huge and epic and ready to go. And uh, and Jesus shows up, and we see the triumphal entry. He shows up on a donkey, and they start waving branches, and they're singing their traditional Passover songs, and they start screaming out Hosanna, which means, Lord, save us. But instead of saying it to God, they start saying it to Jesus, and it creates more political political controversy and tension. And so the enemies of Jesus are starting to circle the wagon, looking for a way to get rid of him, but they have no cause to deal with him. And they're afraid to try to arrest him because he's become so popular with the crowds that the whole community will turn on them. And then something happens that's beyond their wildest dreams. For the enemies of Jesus at this point, one of Jesus' closest disciples breaks ranks. And Judas turns on him and shows up and offers to give him up for a price. And they pay Judas and they coordinate with him to find a time when he's not with the crowd where they can secret him away and arrest him. And then they know they can begin to change the narrative about who he is and make accusations and deal with him. All of this is going on as the Lord looks for a place to celebrate the Passover meal. And this is what we talked about last week. They began this conversation in the upper room. And he takes the covenant that God made with Abraham and essentially says, you've seen now this covenant fulfilled and I'm going to change the way you celebrate and I'm going to fulfill these things and there's gonna be a new covenant and it's gonna be rooted in love and it's not gonna be based on your behavior and your actions and being good enough. He blows the whole thing up and we talked about that last week and after that conversation, we're down to about the last, 24 to 30 hours of his life and ministry before the cross. And there's several important moments that we're going to talk about in the next two weeks. next, Next week is going to be like soap opera time, guys. So don't miss next week. We're going to talk about political intrigue and drama and... The, the infighting and what's going on. I mean, it's, it, we're going to break the whole thing down. But before the soap opera gets like full bent, there's going to be this intimate, close moment that Jesus has. The last time he's with his guys. And if you have your Bibles, I'm going to be in John 17 in just a moment here. And Jesus is going to pray like we've never seen prayer before or since. It's, a, it's an amazing passage of Scripture here in John 17. One uh, theologian by the name of John Knox says that in this chapter we are in the holy of holies of Scripture. We are seen behind the curtain to the most intimate places of the heart of Jesus. If you ever want to know what Jesus is thinking about when he's thinking about you, John 17 is the place to do that. As a matter of fact, uh, I, I read some theologians, and I love this, say that, that John 17 is really the Lord's Prayer. And, you know, you can't say that, Pastor Mike. We know the Lord's Prayer, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, right? We know the Lord's Prayer, but if you think about that, that title of the Lord's Prayer, that's not in the Scriptures, That title, the Lord's Prayer, that came later as the editors of the scriptures tried to give, uh, you know, you know, the Bible wasn't written in chapter and verse, right? It was written as letters and chapters and verses were added much, much later just to help us navigate so we can get to the same place. But they're not scripture. And sometimes you have to be careful with chapters and verses because we train ourselves to to think like, oh, that's the end of the chapter. That must be the end of the conversation. And also in the scriptures, the, the titles that sometimes you see above sections, that's all added later just so that we can kind of know what we're talking about. So, for instance, when we say, you know, the prodigal son, everyone goes, oh, Luke 15, right? Well, nowhere does Jesus stop and say, now I'm going to tell you the story of the prodigal son. Like That's not contained within the scripture. That's added much later so that we can go there. Now, you have to be careful with that because, it, for instance, in the story of the prodigal son, how many sons are in that story? There's two sons in that story. And so when you say the story of the prodigal son, it actually changes the way we think about a story that's actually a story about two sons. So anyways, it's important as we get into the scripture that we don't allow the, uh, the titles or the chapters or the verses to really tell us how to think about what we're reading. They're just helpful so we can find locations, okay? They're added much later for that, for that purpose. So when, when we say the Lord's Prayer, we go, oh, the Lord's Prayer. I know where the Lord's Prayer is. It's in Luke uh, chapter 11, and, and, uh, and we hear this story, and it says, one day Jesus was praying in a certain place. You know, it was his practice to pray all the time. Luke chapter 11, verse 1, it says, when he finished, one of his disciples says, uh, Lord, teach us to pray just as John taught his disciples, so then he goes, he said to them, when you pray, say, and then, you know, we, we get the whole thing. So if I were titling that, I wouldn't call that the Lord's Prayer. I would call that the Disciples' Prayer. He says, when you pray, pray like this. He was praying, and they said, help us pray. And he goes, here, I'll help you pray. When you pray, pray like this. So we call that the Lord's Prayer, and it's fine. I mean, I'm not going to, you know, if you've got a thing that says Lord Prayer in your house, you don't have to erase it or white it out or anything. It's not, it's not hurting anybody. I just want you to understand that the, this is Jesus teaching them to pray. But this isn't Jesus praying and the, encapsulating the fullness of who he is when he prays. This is him teaching them to pray. And this is actually really cool. I love this because it, it is intriguing to me that the disciples see him praying. And they're like, that's the thing we need to add. If you were hanging out with Jesus all the time, wouldn't it think about what you would ask him to teach you to do. Jesus, can you teach me to 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 cure blindness and leprosy? That'd probably be on my list, right? How about that thing where there's a lot of extra food when we're done eating? Can you, can you teach me that thing? Or, you know what? You're a very good speaker. Can you, can you give me some tips? You know, for me, this would be a thing. Can you give me some tips on how to hold a crowd and, and get your point across? And where are you pulling these stories from? Like, you know, can you give me some tips on, like, there's a lot of things they could have asked Jesus for help with. But the only thing we really ever see them totally floored by is they watch the prayer life of Jesus and they're like, there's something different there. Will you teach us that mystery? Because connected to the way you pray, things seem to move in heaven and earth. And so he says, would you, the disciples come to him and they, they see him pray and they're like, teach us to pray. And he's like, okay, let me teach you to pray. So we have this picture on Luke 11 of, of the disciples being very aware that Jesus prays, that he prays all the time. He prays in certain places. He gets up in the morning in prayer. He prays sometimes for an hour. He goes off into quiet places and he prays. He, he prepares to, uh, to, to combat uh, the temptation of the enemy by prayer. He's constantly in a conversation with his father. And the disciples have picked this up. And they're asking about how to do it that way and how do we live that out? And now we see this incredible picture of Jesus praying. And I have to ask myself, I wonder, I wonder sometimes, and this is a fair question to ask, like, did it really matter if Jesus prayed? I mean, he is God in a bod, right? He's God in a bod. We could say that in church. It's true. He's God and he's in the flesh, and but he's still God. So why is he talking to the Father about things that he wants to see get, why does he just say happen? Why does he pray? Why does he talk to God? And for some, some amazing reason, in the midst of all the scripture, we see that Jesus having taken on human flesh submits himself to the will of the Father to model for us what it looks like to be fully human, yet connected to the heart of God. And so he prays all the time so that we get how it works, how it looks to be in this relationship with God. And I wonder how our prayers look. And we see this story of Jesus's life and ministry, and it's just continual, that he begins, continues, and ends his life in prayer. He He prays, and 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 he prays. And he prays and somebody says but i'm busy yeah yeah i get it that's why you need to pray wow well, you don't understand i got so much going on yeah 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 that's why you need to pray but you don't understand there's so much if this doesn't and then this doesn't then you don't understand the cause con- yeah, yeah 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 that's why you need to pray the disciples were pretty busy For three years they're journeying and rocking around with him, they're covering a lot of territory. He's sending them off on missions, they're coming back and reporting. And at the end of much of that teaching, they look at him and they're like, We can't keep doing this unless we learn to pray like you pray. It fuels everything else that they do. So Jesus in John 17 is about to pray. He's gonna pray for three things. He's gonna pray for himself, he's gonna pray for the disciples and he's going to pray for all of us but before he prays in John 17 I got to catch you up a little bit more in the story so so there's some if you're not aware of this, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, are four gospel accounts, they're all telling the same story from different perspectives, and so all of them are true, but they're capturing different moments, and because they're capturing different moments that were significant to them, that they recorded, um, some as much as like 30 years or 60 years later, they're writing these things down, and they're remembering the critical moments important, and under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, they're gathering these stories, so the stories are harmonious, and they're true, but they all catch sometimes different pieces and different parts of the story. And so sometimes chronologically, there's a little room where we can say, we're not sure if this happened here or if it happened here or it happened here, but it was somewhere along this stretch within these couple of hours. So Jesus, they have uh, the upper room experience. He breaks the bread, said, this is my body. He drinks the juice with them and says, this is the new covenant in my blood. We're changing everything. He washes their feet in that moment. and uh, And there's this humbling experience where he says, you know, I'm now as your teacher showing you, that this is what true leadership is. And you're if you aren't greater than your teacher, then you'll serve the way I serve by taking your strength and putting it underneath someone who's weaker than you and lifting them up. If you do those things, you'll experience real strength. They have this power conversation. He breaks bread and, and, they, and he's talking about someone betraying him. And they're like, who would do this? And he goes, the one I give the bread to. And he gives it to Judas, and this light bulb still don't go on, but the scripture says Judas leaves at that point. And they're like, oh, that's weird. I'm just telling you, they're not the brightest. Hindsight, I'm sure they look back and went, what were we thinking? Judas leaves, and now it's just him and the eleven. And he's gonna take them on this journey over to the Garden of Gethsemane. And, and this is what's beginning to happen. They they get out of the upper room and they're walking and it's the harvest season. And we believe it's probably a full harvest moon going on there. So by, by full moon, moonlight, they're walking through the city of Jerusalem and they're gonna head to the Kidron Valley. Um, I've been there, it's not that wide. They're gonna go down and they're gonna go up the Mount of Olives and they're gonna be at the Garden of Gethsemane. That place still exists today. As a matter of fact, there's olives trees there that are more than 2,000 years old that would have existed, come on now, at the time, they would have given testimony to the fact that Jesus was there. He goes down the Kidron Valley, and they're following him, and they're, they're going up the Mount of Olives, and, and he starts a conversation with them. This is like around John 14 and, uh, and 15, and in John 15, he says, he says, you know what? I'm the vine, and you're the branches, If you remain in me or abide in me, you'll bear much fruit. And as he's walking, there's two potential things that he sees here. There would have been ancient uh, 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 grapes uh, vineyards that they may be walking through. Also, they would have walked past the the, the gate to the temple, beautiful, and uh, and the traditional decorations of that would have had vines, grape vines on the gate. So he may be looking at this beautiful gate that that represents access into the temple and to the place where they believed God remained and the spirit and presence of God rested. He may be looking at this ornate vine and, he, and he, he says hey that's me I'm the gate I'm the vine you're the branches or he may be still walking through actual vineyards and they may be having a conversation in the midst of that and he says I'm the vine you're the branches And he says if you remain in me you'll bear much fruit but anyone who doesn't remain in me they're not going to bear fruit and then they get cut off And he's telling this story about how it's going to be if they're going to stay connected, if they're going to be successful in this journey when he's gone, they're going to need to stay connected to him. And then he mentions in John 16, just so you know, if you do these things and you stay connected to me, the world is going to hate your guts and people are going to turn on you. And things aren't going to go as smoothly. You think they're going rough now. You haven't really braced yourself for how rough it's going to be when you live in counterculture to the ways and the patterns and the systems of this world. They're going to turn on you. But have courage because I've overcome the world. And he has this conversation with them about where their strength comes from and how do they stand and how do they remain disciples in the midst of all of this stuff that's going on. And then we get to John chapter 17, and he's either on the path in the Kidron Valley, he's either just walked past the gate, or he may be all the way to the Garden of Gethsemane at this point. All of those things are possibilities, but the stage is set. It's the middle of the night. He's praying, and he's praying out loud. How do you know he's praying out loud? Because his words are recorded. The disciples were able to hear him pray. I imagine walking around with Jesus was probably a fun experience to just hear him talking to the Father all the time. John chapter 17, verse 1. He says, after Jesus said this, he looked towards the heavens and he prayed. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son so the son may glorify you. I love that he looked towards the heavens. Some translations say he lifted his eyes. He took his eyes. He's looking around the situation. He knows he's got an appointment with the cross. They don't know he's got an appointment with the cross, but he knows what's about to happen. He knows the business, come on now, that, uh, that uh, um, Judas is about. He knows what's going on. He knows he's got an appointment with betrayal, and for the next 24 hours, it's gonna be the roughest moments of his earthly life, and as he's walking and he's teaching, he takes his eyes off his circumstances, and he puts them on his father. Somebody just needed to hear that today. You may see something coming that you don't like, and you can read the tea leaves, so to speak, and you understand the situation that's coming is not the situation that's ideal. It's not the situation that you would hope for, but you have to take your eyes off your circumstance and point them at the Father. And then he said, The time has come. So glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. He says, The focus is the Father. Verse two, I gotta go faster than this. For you granted him authority over all people, so that he might give eternal life to all those that you have given to him. This is crazy good stuff. It's confusing, but it's awesome. He says, you've given him, talking about himself in third person, authority over everyone that you might give eternal life to all those that you have given him. And this is a a mystery. I'm just going to tell you that there's mystery in scripture, that God allows some mystery and lets us live in the tension of mystery. But essentially what he's saying is there are people who God recognized, predestined, preordained, planned to be in relationship with the son and that Jesus is excited about that. He's recognizing that he's been given by the Father, people who have chosen. And this is crazy because people will say, Well, did we choose or does God choose? And the answer is yes. And we divide ourselves up all the time on little tensions like this because we believe we can know with certainty things that are only understandable in the heavenlies. Yes, you have free will. You are not predetermined. You can do what God uh, allows you to do within free will. And yes, God knows the end of every story and has a plan. And he draws who he draws. The answer is yes. I didn't solve that for any of you. Neither does the scripture. Verse three. He says, now this is eternal life. This is important. Jesus says, hey, let me clarify what eternal life is. What is it? That they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. He says, hey, this is, this is eternal life. This is heaven. This is what it looks like when someone moves from, you know, from, from a destiny away from God to a destiny with God. What is it? It is a personal relationship with God through his son. Time and time again, Jesus is trying to recalibrate what it looks like to have eternal life and what it looks like to have relationship with his father. He says, you got to believe and know through me, the father. Verse four, I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. It's like progress report time. I've been on mission, dad. Here's my report card. I'm doing the work you called me to do. You sent me, you told me gather disciples. You said this was going to be the plan. We're going to change the world. We're going to change the covenant. We're going to change uh, the entire relational aspects and dynamics. Now, there's some more things that are going to happen tomorrow or tomorrow. Next week, we're going to break down all these things. There's more work before Jesus actually says it is finished. But he has walked down the path. There's no turning back now. He's talking to the Father and he's saying, here it is. Verse 5, and now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. That's amazing. I think sometimes we forget the state that Jesus was in before the manger. Before, come on now, before a baby showed up that first Christmas morning, like one second before that, He was on the throne, Isaiah chapter 6 tells us. The train of his robe fills the temple. The the heavens were shaking because the angels were screaming in worship and shouting, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was, who is, and is to come. The choir of angels are worshiping him. He is in a position of glory, and then, bam, he's in a manger. Woo! That's cray-cray, guys. That's an amazing picture for a heavenly savior to get off that throne, out of that position and come and inhabit human flesh and put up with all of us. And Jesus is saying, I recognize where I'm headed back. I've done my work. So he prays first for himself and then the tone of his prayer changes and shifts and he starts to pray for the disciples, for the 11 that are there. He's teaching them what it's going to look like when he's gone. If you're a disciple, a follower of Jesus, these things are going to ring true in your life now as well. But he's praying specifically for the disciples at this point. Verse six, he says, I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me, and they have obeyed your word. What an amazing statement. Guys, I don't know about you, when you think about tombstone level statements, this is a cool statement. I obeyed his word. I obeyed his word. I want this statement to be about me. I want this statement to be true of my life. I obeyed his word. I obeyed his word. I obeyed his word. I don't want to even get into it but I I just got to be honest with you I don't know how many times I've had conversations with people whose lives are spiraling and if you were to go back and say okay so when did when did when did we fall off the cliff like when did we go from here to now we're spiraling and it was somewhere along the line there was a moment where they had a decision whether they were going to obey or not obey his word come on now and they made a decision there's that whole free will tension again and said, I'm not going to obey. And then whew, consequence, whew, to consequence, whew, to consequence. And they find themselves in this position, struggling. Why? Because they didn't obey his word. And here's Jesus. And he's looking at the 11. and He says, these are the ones that have heard and they've obeyed your word. And listen, I just want you to hear something. I just believe this is true. It's been the testimony of my life. It's just, it's absolutely my story. And I've given it to you. And I hope it becomes your story. You can hear from God and you can do anything. You can hear from God, you can obey, and you can do anything, anything he calls you to. There's nothing off the table. I always felt like I was supposed to be a missionary. Did you hear from God? You can do it. I always felt like I was supposed to start a business or change my family. Okay, did you hear from God? Because you can do it. You can hear from God. You can do anything. Verse 7. Now they know that everything you have given me comes from you. For I gave them the words you gave me, and they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you, and they believed that you sent me. Time and time again, Jesus has talked about the power of believing, that the work is to believe. In John chapter 6, he talks about this. They say, what's the work that, that God desires? And he says, to believe in the one who he sent. He says, your whole amount of work on this journey is about increasing your belief and believing in me there's power when you believe the disciples were not particularly bright time and time again we see that they struggled with things they didn't put things together they weren't they weren't the the uh, it's not that they weren't bright that's a mean for me to say it that way they just there's nothing in here to indicate something exceptional beyond the fact that they heard from God and believed and it positioned them based on that belief to lead to be world changers power of believing. Verse 9, says, I pray for them. It's awesome. And I'm not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they're yours. All I have is yours, and all you have is mine. All glory has come to me through them. He says, everything I have is yours, and everything, Father, you have is also mine, and the glory that comes to me I'm putting it through them. He goes, I will remain in the world no longer, but they're still in the world. I'm coming to you, Holy Father, but protect them by the power of your name. We just sang about this. The name you gave me so that they may be one as you, we are one. He says, I want you to have the same kind of unity and I want them to have power and protection under my name. Verse 12, while I was with them, I protected them. I kept them safe by the name that you gave me. None has been lost, well, except the one doomed to destruction <laughs> so that the scripture would be fulfilled. He goes, he goes, I've taken care of my followers. Nothing outside of the will of God has been allowed to happen to them. I have authority because of the power of my name to manage this thing. So I've taken care of them. Not, nothing's been taken from me except for the one. And that was always the plan. We knew that was going to happen. Verse 13, I'm coming to you now, but I say these things while I'm still in the world so that they may have the full measure of my joy with them. He's like, before I leave, they need to hear this prayer. They need to understand that I'm praying for them, that I have their back, that their power and authority comes from me, that they have access to my name, that nothing that you have planned for them will not happen. You can, they can count on Me and you. That's why I'm praying out loud. Where am I at? 14. I've given them your word. Listen to this. And the world has hated them. For they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. We got to talk about this for just a second, guys. What is he saying? He's not saying... I don't want them to ever interact with anybody in the world. This idea of world is a confusing concept in the scripture because it gets used a lot of ways. So let me break it down for you a little bit and hopefully this will make sense to you. When, when the scriptures use the term world, they mean one of usually three things, either the physical, actual earth, right? So like trees and plants and the ground and climate and all of those kinds of things, right? Sometimes it means all the people of the world, all the people of the world. So you and me, cousins, brothers, aunts, uncles, everybody all over the world. Sometimes it's about the people. But sometimes when he means the world, he's talking about the attitude and the spiritual stronghold of resisting God that exists in the world. That's why Satan is called the prince of the world, right? He controls that attitude and that stronghold and that heart that resists God. God, that pride that says, I don't need God. And I'm, I got this on my own. And this is what he's speaking about here. He's saying, they're not part of that. They're not contaminated any longer by that. And so, so I don't want you though, to take them out of the world. They're going to confront culture. They're going to confront, I mean, they're in a wicked, evil culture in Rome. They're gonna confront it. I'm not trying to pluck them out. I'm not trying to isolate them. Come on, guys, I gotta be honest with you. We, we as Christians get this wrong all the time. We think, oh, we've gotta get completely out of the world. And we're not sure which world we're talking about. Like the earth? Like away from every person? Or away from the attitudes and the spiritual strongholds of the enemy? What are we talking about? And since we confuse them, We hibernate or we not hibernate, we hub up and we isolate and we pull ourselves out of the world. And the scripture tells us time and time again that that disciples, followers of Jesus, were not pulled out of the world. They were not called to isolation. They were not called to separation. That's not the call of the believer or the disciple. He says, I'm not pulling them out of the world. That's never what he's trying to say. He even prays, verse 15. This is how Jesus is praying for followers of Jesus. Not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. He says, guard them. You got their back. This is one of those, my dad's bigger than your dad moments, right? This is him saying, my dad is bigger than the dad of this world, and so my job is for them to understand that my dad has their back when they're confronting things in the world. And we struggle with this because we want to isolate. The other thing we try to do is we just try to integrate in a way that says we're just going to make peace with the world all the time. So whatever the world says is cool, we'll say is cool for right now. Right? So if, if this particular topic is cool in the world, even though it doesn't align with Scripture, we'll just be cool with it. We'll try to keep making peace, keep making peace, keep making peace. And that's not what he's saying. He's not saying that that's our role. He's, not, he's saying, I'm giving you your world. Back up. The world's going to hate them, for they're not any part of the world more than I'm part of the world, verse 14. He goes, he goes the world is going to, listen, if you've made such peace with the world that it's not uncomfortable to people who hate Jesus, that the things you stand for aren't uncomfortable for them, Jesus is like, you're going to be hated. Let me get this clear. Get over the, uh, the, the uh, rose-colored glasses that says the world is just going to be your oyster. There is a spiritual stronghold in this world that wants to steal, kill, and destroy. And if you align with that, come on now, you, you, you can't do that and be on Team Jesus. You can't. You have to contend for truth and life and hope and love. And you don't want the world define those things. But he's like, but I'm not taking you out of the world. I'm leaving you here. Verse 16. They're not of the world, even as I'm not of it. Then he says, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. So he clarifies, what is sanctification? Sanctifying us just means making us more and more into the image of Christ. It's cleaning us up, preparing us, making us like God. He goes, I'm praying for the followers of my followers, my disciples, that you would make them more like me. And the tool that you would use to do that, come on now, is your word and your truth. We're the truth tellers, guys. This is how Jesus prays. He prays that we'd be truth tellers. Verse 18, and you sent me into the world. Now I'm sending them into the world. For them, I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. He goes, for them, I'm living it out, so that they can see you can live it out. You can live it out. He prays for his followers. He says, you're going to have so much tension in this world. you know, so much tension. I don't know if anyone stood in front of you with a microphone and tried to tell you that everything was going to go great if you follow Jesus. I'm just telling you, when <coughs> Jesus prays for his followers... He's like, God, don't pull him out of the world. Just protect him from evil. Wouldn't it be nice if he prayed, give them all Broils Royces? In the Greek, I don't know what that is. It'd be great if he prayed like that. It's not how he prayed. He says, you protect them from evil, and you leave them in the world. They're change agents. They represent, represent me. Sanctify them. Make them more and more like me. But they're going to have impact and be change agents. That's what he prays for his disciples. But then he does something amazing. And then he prays for us. He prays forward through time. And this is so cool. This is the only time in the scripture we see Jesus praying forward in history to people who aren't in his immediate vicinity. He's praying for them. Verse 20, this is for us. He goes, my prayer, it's not for them alone. So all of the things he just prayed about being a disciple and a follower, it's not just for the immediate eleven. He goes, I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. Guess what? We're reading their message right now. Your belief in Jesus is through the message of these knuckleheads that he pulled together that were fishermen and tax collectors and and just messy, normal, earthy humans. Jews who lived 2,000 years ago and and, and wrote down and testified the message that they heard from Jesus. And you're here today because of that message. So when you are following Jesus, you're being prayed for right here. How cool is that? I told you we were in the Holy of Holies. This is awesome. So Jesus actively praying for us. What else does he pray for? What does Jesus pray for when he prays for us? Verse 21. That all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I'm in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. He goes, listen, when I think about what's coming next, when I pray for the the messy thing of the church and the beautiful thing of the church that's going to spring up out of their ministry, the critical thing is going to be that they are one. Now, this is crazy talk. Because this church is gonna sprout up and it's gonna it's gonna infect culture, it's gonna cross over ethnic boundaries and socioeconomic boundaries, it's gonna cross over gender boundaries, it's gonna cross over everything. As a matter of fact, it's gonna it's gonna force those that are the early adapters to a abandon long-held traditional practices and beliefs because the new covenant changes everything and they're gonna to have to figure out how to integrate with people who they have other up until this point actually withdrawn and hated. They're gonna have to change everything. So it is very important that Jesus establishes the oneness that's going to be critical moving forward. Now, notice he doesn't say sameness. Sameness is a whole nother story. I want them all to be the same. Everyone's the same height, same haircut, right? We're just genderless, gray things, and we're all the same. That's never the conversation, right? That's an absurdity. He doesn't call us to sameness. We're different. We embrace our differences. As a matter of fact, Paul teaches us that in the body, all the different pieces make it beautiful and functional, But they all operate as one body. Oneness is about clarity of mission and direction and purpose and clarity of submission to the Father. That's what oneness is about, not sameness. And so some will look at this and they'll say the church is in absolute uh, 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 rejection to God because there's different denominations and different expressions and different things. And I, I look at that and I go, well, some are probably out of control. Yes. But the scripture doesn't call us to sameness. He says there's there's beauty in your uniqueness, but there's unity in our mission and clarity in our direction and purpose. And here's the thing that's crazy, guys. They believed this. And they decided to be one. And when they were one, they won. Did you catch that? When they were one, they won. They beat Rome. They beat culture. They beat Herod and Pilate and Caesar, they beat Ephesus and the Vegas like style that was there. They beat Corinth and the debauchery that was there. They beat they they won because they decided to be one. They broke over cultural and socioeconomic economic boundaries. They fought against against judge, judging people who were different than them. They, they wrestled with each other over which rules they should even place on anybody. And finally, they were just like, you can read this Acts 15. They're like, we got to just get rid of this legalistic system that we're in. And if we can just make sure that they're honoring God with their body and avoiding contaminated blood like like if they can just avoid kind of the, those things that will kill them or harm them and, and take them out of like like let's just simplify the whole thing let's just make it about loving god with all your heart soul mind and strength and loving your neighbor as yourself and they and they decided that they were going to become one behind that And then Paul's able to write in Galatians that there's not a slave anymore or a free person. There's not a male or or, or a female. There's not a Greek. There's not a Jew. Why is he saying that? Because those things didn't exist in culture anymore? No, they certainly existed. He's just saying because the mission of God overrides all of those things and you merge into one body under one mission and you become one. I don't know if you caught any of that, but Jesus prayed specifically for that kind of unity. Where am I at? Verse 22. <laughs> i got to wrap this up. I've given them the glory that you gave me that they may be one as we are one. And I and them and you and me is repeating this thought so we get it. So they may be brought to complete what? Unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. He's like, if they do this part right, the whole world will go, there's something different about these folks. They love people who don't look the same as them. They love people who don't talk the same, who don't come from the same background, who don't come from the same land even. They love them and treat them with value and recognize that God has a plan for them just like themselves. And they, 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 they model this crazy service that, that's willing to get down and wrap a towel around your waist and wash the feet of someone who's beneath you by all other accounts to lift them up by giving them your strength. This crazy, ridiculous love and forgiveness and compassion that came out of them as they modeled the life of Jesus. He says, the whole world's going to get it if they do this. Verse 24. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am. He goes, they're going to get some heaven. And to see my glory and the glory you've given me because you love me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, though the world doesn't know you, I know you. And they know that you've sent me. I've made you known to them. And I'll continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. He says, listen, I just want them to know how much they're loved. I want them to have a picture of how good you are, of the promise that's better than anything they're experiencing. I'm not pulling them out of the world and the world's gonna be rough, but the promise of being where I am. Just a few chapters before, he's like, don't fear the world. My father's house, there's many mansions. If I leave, that's where I'm at. I'm preparing a place for you. He's like, you've got to understand, this is the short life. And when they hold together and bound their hearts and lives to mission together in the short life, the promise of the long life is so much better. He's like, that's the story, guys. Theologian Warren Wearsby says, this is the greatest prayer ever prayed on earth. And the greatest prayer recorded anywhere in scripture, it's simply the heart of Jesus. It's simply the heart of Jesus. What do we learn from this prayer? He does two specific things. I'm going to skip ahead a little bit, but he does two specific things. One, he lifts up his eyes. He takes his thinking and direction off of the immediate and he puts it on the plan of heaven. And then he lifts up his voice and he articulates to his father His situation and what's going on. And I think sometimes we we forget to do these two things. These two simple tools that Jesus modeled for us. We get so busy that we don't take our eyes and say, wait a second, this isn't everything right here, what's in front of me right now. There's a bigger plan. And how does this thing I'm struggling with connect to the heart and the will and the mission of God? How am I being one with what God's called me to be, to be and do in this season? That's the first step. And then he lifts up his voice. Have you? When's the last time you invited God into your circumstance? When you said, all right, God, here I am. I'm stuck, I'm frustrated, or I think I'm doing the right thing. I'm not sure. I just wanna be... Where you've called me to be and do what you've assigned and called me to do. Have you lifted your voice? And then in the midst of all of this, he makes it clear. And this is very important for the next week. That in the midst of this deception that's happening with Judas and the political intrigue and the working of the world that's happening, he makes it clear that he's the overcomer and not the victim. And he says, this is, this is what it looks like to be in Jesus. No matter what the world throws at you, you've overcome. You're not in victim status. We who follow Jesus never fall into victim status, okay? That's not, that's not a thing for us. We overcome. We overcome. When they, when they, when they slaughtered these disciples, they weren't victims, right? They overcame, they finished the work, they ran the race, they did what God called them to do and they celebrated in victory every soul that was impacted by the way they lived and managed their life and became one. So they won. He said that's how it works. Next week is soap opera time. Would you stand with me? I want to just point out one other truth and uh, I want to give you this truth just as a point of encouragement this week. I'm already going to challenge you, just very simply. Whatever your circumstances is, lift your eyes up and lift your voice. Right. Start with those two things. But I want to give you one other, just truth to encourage you this week. As as uh, I know, it's spring break for some, or some are coming off of spring break. There's all kinds of change in the air. Things are happening. I just want to encourage you one thing. The scripture tells us that Jesus was praying all the time. Right. We see him praying. We see him often praying. We see him getting away to quiet places and praying. This is the longest and, and, and largest and recorded prayer of Jesus, but this isn't it. The scripture then goes on to tell us in multiple places in Romans chapter 8, he says that, that, that Jesus who died, more than that, was raised to life, is at the right hand of God interceding for us. Jesus continues to pray for us. He prayed and is praying. His assignment in heaven, part of his role and identity as part of the triune God, is he is the intercessor on the behalf of his people who God has given him. He is praying for you today. First John 2, 1 John 2.1 says it this way: if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous one. He's advocating like a like a lawyer advocates. He's an in-between. He's he's saying, Hey, Father, I know this one messed up, but you should know about the heart that's in this one, and you should know about the plan I have for them. And you should know that they were not finished and we're working on. It. He's advocating. Hebrews 7.5 says, Therefore, he's able to save completely those who come to God through him. Listen to this, because 7.25, because he always lives to intercede for them. He says he lives in heaven and his life in heaven is an intercessory life. That means he's praying now for you. Today, this moment, I told the the team this morning, can you imagine if as you walked into the building and you were getting your coffee and the doors were closed and you could just hear someone praying for you? Oh, Father! Father! Be with Kevin this morning. Meet him where he's at. And you heard the voice and you're like, I recognize that voice. And he was praying for you. He's like, Kevin, he's got, you, I've got to, you know, your plan for him is good. I know he's walking through what he's walking through, but give him strength and resource. And you were like, oh, that's so encouraging. And then you went, wait a second. That's not just anybody's voice. That's Jesus's voice. Can you imagine that, that if the proximity to his voice was such that you could hear it, that he was interceding, advocating. I know Kevin's blown it, but you should believe in what, what right? Advocating for him, praying for him, and, and, and interceding on the Father's half, behalf for him. Now, here's what I want you to catch. Proximity makes no difference. You would be incredibly confident and blessed if you walked in and heard that voice. I'm telling you, that's what's happening in heaven on your behalf right now. Think about what that should mean to your confidence, to your faith, to your willingness to trust him, to places where you have fear that's crept in. Think about what that should mean to that. I wanna encourage you with that. When the enemy tries to, come on, the principalities, the spirit of this world, not the people of this world, not the earth, but when the spirit of this world tries to get in your head this week and say, no, 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 you're not good enough, you can't do it, you're a failure, you're a loser, You've whatever it is. There is in heaven right now On your behalf, prayer, going to the throne from the lips of Jesus. That's awesome. That is crazy good news. And if that doesn't come on now, stir your heart a little bit and give you some confidence and give you some courage and restore hope that would anchor your soul. I don't have much else out of the cleverness of my own words that could help you beyond that. So I'm just going to give you that, and I'm going to pray. Jesus, thank you. Thanks for praying on our behalf, interceding on our behalf. Thanks for caring. Thanks for giving us a glimpse into this very intimate conversation. Thanks for storing and recording this testimony for us so we could hear your heart and the conversation you have with the Father, that, that you understand that, that the mission you were on was for all of us, and then you prayed forward through time, not to pluck us out of this world, but that we'd be agents of change and hope and your love in this world, and the way and the method we would do it was by the power of your name and con- coming into unity the way you modeled it with your father. I pray the words and the, and the uh, thoughts and the attitudes of our heart would be in unity with your heart. Because if we do that, it says the whole world will know. The whole world will know. And this group of 11, they believed that they could be one. And that's how they won. If we did that, imagine, imagine the impact. I pray for the people that we've been thinking about inviting on Easter. Give us courage I pray for the people we know who need to hear this message. I pray that the people that you put in our lives that, that need to know this stuff, I pray you'd give us courage to be an impact and a difference maker and a, and a game changer. I pray for lives that have been too conformed to the patterns of this world. Uh, you, Hebrews, uh, uh, Romans twelve two tells us, don't conform. Don't do it. Don't, don't just try to make the patterns of this world normal in our lives. I pray that we'd be transformed by the renewing of our minds. Change us. And make us one, I pray. And I pray when the voice, that world spirit voice tries to lie to our hearts, that we would keep our eyes on you. We'd lift our voice and we'd listen to your word. And we'd be encouraged and strengthened that you're interceding on our behalf. We love you. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. And amen.